We all know how serious and dreadful the current situation in Myanmar is. For those of us outside the country, it can be difficult to know how to help. Of course, there are significant, ongoing needs across all segments of Burmese society. For those who are able to give financially, any donations given to our nonprofit mission, Better Burma, will immediately be put towards helping those being impacted by the coup. Just go to insightmyanmar.org donation to contribute today, or stay tuned to the end of the episode to hear more options. Thank you for your consideration. And now, let's get into the interview that follows. On this episode of Insight Myanmar podcast, I'm joined by Andrea Gittleman. She is currently the policy director for the Simon Scott Center for the Prevention of Genocide at the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington, D.C. We're going to talk about the museum itself, which has had an ongoing Rohingya exhibit on their grounds, as well as her background as well, which, as we'll find, coincides with Myanmar as well. So, Andrea, thanks for making the time to chat with us. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Mm, Right. So there's a couple of parallel tracks we have for this conversation, and they do converge. One track is your life story and how your personal involvement has intersected with various parts of Myanmar. And the second is the organization you now work for, the Holocaust Museum, and the work that they've done. And I suppose we should start first with your story, because that predates, at least in, in the conversation we'll have, that predates your joining the Holocaust uh, Museum, and then we'll get into what they've done concerning Myanmar. So getting into your story, I understand that uh, perhaps your first involvement with uh, Myanmar was when you were in Maysat, a part of the Burma Lawyers Council. Uh, So can you tell us about your experiences in Maysat, your involvement with Myanmar issues, and how your life started to become involved with the country and culture. Sure, sure, happy to. And and thank you again for inviting me. I'm, I'm happy to, to share this. Uh, so I started working with the Burma Lawyers Council based in Mesa, Thailand at the time. I started working with them when I was in law school and then shortly after law school, so about 15 years ago. I was working with a team of lawyers who were doing really incredible things. 
some uh, some parts of the organization were focused on training um, migrant workers from Burma who were working in Thailand and making sure that they were aware of their rights, their labor, their labor rights, um, and could address any issues that they might have had working in Thailand. Uh, they were also working on projects that document mass atrocities, specifically war crimes and crimes against civilians in Karen State and in other parts of Burma. And this was done, um, you know, on a shoestring budget and with really dedicated people who were very good at what they did, but still had creative methods of getting information from hard to reach places within the country, getting that out, documenting uh, the crimes, keeping databases about what's happening, and then sharing that information with the public. So my role included working alongside the people who were documenting those crimes and helping with uh, translating what was happening to the international community. And back in 2009, 2010, there was an effort at the time, as, as I'm sure you know, and as your listeners know, to advance uh, justice and accountability efforts for uh, civilians who had been subjected to, to mass atrocities in Burma. There was an effort to galvanize international momentum, to establish a commission of inquiry, you know, having a formal investigative body look at what uh, crimes had been committed. And so the information that Burma Lawyers Council was collecting was part of this broader effort to uh, have this, this international demand for accountability, really reflecting what a lot of the uh, community-based organizations had been doing for so long. So I would help with that international advocacy effort, which really had been been led for, for so long by people with deep expertise on documentation, on, on legal issues, and on human rights from Burma. And as this was really one of your first involvements with Burma, understanding the people, the history, the tragedy, the ongoing tragedy and crisis uh, that was going on, and you were up, up close and personal in Mesat, not looking at it from afar, right. Right. what stood out during this issue? What, what was really prominent and marked your learnings and uh, that you still remember from your time and digging in for the first time? Right. Well, it was uh, formative for me, of course. Um, I was uh, a young lawyer, very interested in international human rights. I'm not from Burma. I'm not from Southeast Asia. I was learning a lot every day. And it was really you know, energizing and inspiring for me to be surrounded by so many people who had dedicated their lives to um, bringing, up, bringing about a brighter future for, for their people. So I was learning a lot. I was also able to interact with you know, people from a number of communities within Burma. And so as someone who was first starting to unravel you know, what, what, is, what is happening, and as an outsider, there was limits to, I think, what you can, can ever understand about a, a country that is, that is not your own. But I was learning so much from people who were all from very different backgrounds, uh, but who all had this common thread of you know, having suffered uh, violence, having suffered persecution, often on the basis of, of ethnicity or religion, you know, on the basis of their, their identity, um, and people who had experienced conflict. And none of this was, was new to them. And people were telling me stories of, of conflicts that had been going on for decades. And so even though I was working with people from a number of different communities, there were these common threads among a lot of their experiences. And that's something that, that carries forward today. Um, and maybe because I was in Mesot or maybe another product of the times, but I was not working alongside many Rohingya organizations, um, again, for geographic and probably other reasons as well. But in some of the coalitions that were forming then, I mean, there wasn't a lot of discussion about uh, violence against or persecution of Rohingya. And that's something that became more and more apparent as I, as I learned more about 
the you know the democracy movement and I learn more about human rights issues in the country. Yeah, and that's definitely something we want to get into more in the conversation concerning what your museum and your department and role has done there. Uh, staying with your time in Mesat, what also strikes me is that you reference how you would study this. You'd studied human rights and documentation of atrocities and, and such from a legal sense in a formal setting, a school setting, academic setting in America. And then in Mesat, you're plunged into the ground reality of this unfolding before you. So in what ways was there, did you find a divergence or something that might have surprised you from how you were studying this as a field and then when you came to be involved and immersed in real situation unfolding before you? Sure. And it's it's a very good question. I think something that um, perhaps is absent from uh, you know the, the ways in which we learn about human rights efforts. So we, you know, we learn about the, the legal regimes, we learn about norms, but I, I feel like it's it's so often divorced from the experiences of people who are um, doing the frontline work of tracking these crimes and often, you know, sadly uh, suffering from them. And yeah, there, there seems to be quite a, a big, uh, uh, I, I, not a divergence, but there seems to be quite a break between the conversations had in academic settings about what should be, and then conversations had with civil society groups about what is actually happening. You know, what is um, ideal and what is possible regarding legal avenues to accountability, for example, and then what is the political reality in which we're operating? Um, how can we actually move forward? What what does it mean to uphold these norms? Um, what does it mean when the the groups who probably would be available to participate and, you know, lead their own charge to justice. What if they're not resourced? What if they're not, um, you know, given the the proper platforms to be able to to advance that work on their own? So it was a bit different, again, as, as a, a young lawyer and someone just, you know, emerging from an academic space and working with um, local civil society for the first time. There are a lot of a lot of differences. And I think there's a lot of frustration um, from, you know, people who are living with the practical realities of unenforced norms of waning um, international political attention of some, you know, diplomatic or, or financial support, but, you know, support that's really inconsistent for civil society groups that really need support for the long term in order to make justice a reality. And what also strikes me in what you're saying, you reference the rule of law and understanding of law. And I think this is something that has come into focus much more in the past um, decade or two of just the, or there, we, we've covered it with a couple of our interviews. What comes to mind is recent books by Christina Simeon and Elliot Press Freeman. We've had both of those authors on and discussing the Western understanding of rule of law and than the way that it's been understood or mismanaged or manipulated by regime authorities going back to colonial times and how they understood rule of law, that goes directly into what you were doing as a lawyer and someone studying how law is understood and applied, uh, of course, coming from our sense in America, but then the way that it's been manifested in Myanmar over the years and uh, in the transition period, but certainly with when the military has held power very firmly, how they've understood and applied their understanding of rule of law and how that's then percolated into uh, normal civilians and, and citizenry of how that's then come to understand at the ground level. 
Well, it's it's very interesting. I think it certainly would depend who you you talk to. I mean, I worked with with uh, lawyers who were, uh, I think, had a, a strong foundation in understanding the rule of law, but also understanding the international human rights regimes, and who were intent on on teaching the next generation, teaching young activists from Burma about those the legal norms, about the the history, and about kind of how to practically apply some of that knowledge to their their own work. Um, but that's that's not always the case. And as as in any situation, of course, those in charge will manipulate these these kinds of of definitions and ideas for their own benefit. But there are efforts from uh, some very smart, very dedicated people, many of those who, who I know who are happen to be lawyers, to make sure that there is this information being passed down about what does it actually mean to have an inclusive society that follows the rule of law. Um, and it's difficult, I think, to have those conversations, especially now when sometimes the, the windows to, to pursue a vision like that might seem so, so far off. Mm, certainly, yeah. And now with the current time of just trying to resist the regime, uh, the understanding of rule of law and some post-coup reality takes on a different form. Um, the other thing that strikes me from what you said is, you were describing being in Mesot in 2007, and one of the things that you were doing there was looking at the documentation of atrocities that were ongoing. And I just want to underscore more for our listener base, more for those that might not be so attuned to recent Myanmar history. This is 2007. This is this is over 15 years ago that you're involved in how atrocities are being documented. This didn't start in 2007. This is something that was ongoing far before that. In 1988, it kind of came to the world's attention of what was happening with the oppression there. It did not start in 1988. There were atrocities long before that. And so I just want to underscore the tragic history of how there has been continual awareness and efforts to be able to uh, bring attention and, and formally document the atrocities that are taking place. This is something that is happening only more egregiously now. You talk to any Burma expert out there, uh, you'll hear people say this is the worst it's ever been. And so I just really want to underscore this point for those that are not so attuned to this, that these things that we're talking about, nothing is new. It's been going on for years, for decades, the same kinds of things, the same kinds of tactics, the same kinds of efforts. And there's just, uh, as we're moving, as we've talked about before this conversation, the 35th anniversary of the 1988 democracy movement, it's there's just this sense of tragedy and frustration, even though there you can point to incremental progress and the the long, hard road towards a better future. But balance that with really this pain and frustration of we're talking about the same thing, not year after year, not even decade after decade, but in Myanmar's case, generation after generation. We're having the same conversations about the same things happening with different technology and maybe slightly different geopolitics taking place as well. Right, right, exactly. It's it's really harrowing and um, extremely, well, terrifying to see the current context and to know that, right, as exactly as you say, this has been happening for generations. The tactics perhaps have changed a little bit from the perpetrators, the you know, the, the victim groups and you know, abilities to, to respond or, or to be resilient, that, that has changed in, in different ways too. But the through line, you know, from independence to today is that, you know, there, there hasn't been 
peace and that communities in Burma and civilians across the country have been threatened, have been killed, have been um, experiencing uh, crimes that that uh, you know would would shock the conscience, and the fact that it has been going on for so long you know, by the same kind of groups of of perpetrators is is really alarming. And you're right, what we see now, I just think is is especially devastating. It's not new, but it's certainly worsened in terms of you know the the scale mm-hmm. um, and the the ability of perpetrators to really amplify harm against against its victims. Yeah, that's right. And we're two and a half years in. And we're just seeing more and more egregious violations that are, you know, and I think it, international media has a hard time picking up on exactly the, the angle and how to, how to report on it. It's a, for one thing, it's extremely complex. It's, um, they usually go for a more reductionist view of black and white tropes, but also it's, uh, when you're just having one terrible human rights violation after another, villages wiped out, or airstrikes, or atrocities, or uh, whatever else, it's uh, against uh, peoples and ethnic groups and places that people have never heard of. It's uh, it's hard to really bring the reality of that aside from headlines of just some other village wiped out that no one's ever heard of before. I think there are moments when it, you know, information about the crimes in Burma today can you know, puncture international communities' attention. We are seeing international news coverage, but it's it's not sustained, and it, it often, you know, it, it it sometimes can't be. You know, people get you know they they're focusing on uh, on horrific things all over the world. Um, but I think for people from Burma, for for communities who are under threat, and for the activists who are continuing to document what's happening. That is, it, it's, it's, it's so frustrating to then only have these brief windows where where you can can reach an audience because for people in Burma there aren't only specific windows in which they might be threatened. You know, this is something that has been continuous. Um, and so, what you're mentioning earlier about you know having with the international media kind of having a, a reductionist view of things, I do think that's the case. Um, sometimes that's just uh, you know, that's, that, that's, that's how they, they have to you know, report on what's happening in the world. But I do think it was a, a great problem, especially in the, the brighter moments we had a few years ago, when there were very simple explanations that were reaching outsiders. I, I think people from Burma, of course, knew much more about what was happening. But outsiders were hearing, you know, military regime, which has done, you know, horrific crimes in the past was stepping back and we had this democratic transition and there was so much hope and optimism. And every now and then there would be stories about anti-Muslim violence, anti-Rohingya violence. But in general, as you say, there was this kind of simplistic understanding of what was happening. And speaking with people, including people here in, in Washington, people who cover foreign affairs, there was a sense of the problems are behind us, uh, mm-hmm. things are on the right track. Uh, democracy will be helpful for everyone. But at the same time, uh, what we at the Holocaust Museum and what our our Simon Scott Center for the Prevention of Genocide were seeing were really serious early warning signs of genocide, even during this otherwise brighter time period. And it's often difficult, I think, for us to take a close look at what might be frightening or what might be really disappointing. Uh, It's easier for us to to look at, uh, at reasons to be hopeful but uh, I think we do a disservice to communities at risk if we don't give you know, close attention to, to some of those warning signs. But you're right. What we saw with the, the international conversations in the time of transition from, you know, even back in 2011 
into you know through 2017 and even up until you know the coup two and a half years ago, I think what we're seeing is really simple stories that kind of erase mm-hmm. the experiences of communities who are at most at risk of mass atrocities, including genocide. That's right. And I'm glad that you're bringing your current position into it and the Holocaust Museum that goes next into our discussion of looking at what they as an institution have done. And you're also correct in noting that and pointing out that as the transition period was happening, we had this really feel-good story. It also coincided with the Asian pivot that the Obama administration was making after and just feeling a new blood from the U.S. side after the Bush years. And Myanmar just seemed to fit right into that narrative. And uh, and, and the transition period definitely had some positive features to it. But, you know, the Holocaust Museum uh, funded this report by Graham Wood, I believe it was, uh, in 2014. This was an article in 2014 that was predicting or at least cautioning the risk of genocide among the Rohingya, the uh, headline of this article really struck me. Uh, it's The headline was, A Countryside of Concentration Camps. Um, the reason why this headline struck me so much, and as I was researching for this interview, is that this is an article commissioned by the Holocaust Museum. And so for an article commissioned by the Holocaust Museum to use the word concentration camps in an article in 2014. This is not a light thing that would just be thrown around. This is a, a very intentional use of a very charged word. When the, the Holocaust Museum was established back in 1993, there was a committee on conscience which was dedicated to looking at genocide prevention efforts today. And it was really it was baked into the founding of the museum. And then mm-hmm. over time, from the 70s, 80s, 90s, and certainly to today, that effort has grown. So now there's there are staff resources. There's an entire team of which I'm a part that focuses on genocide prevention. Uh, we try to make sure that the U.S. government and others have information so that they're responding to early warning risks of genocide and other um, mass atrocities, that they can have the ability, the tools, knowledge, and political will to stop them um, and to promote justice for uh, victims and survivors after the fact. And the museum started working in Burma in in 2013, so shortly before this article that you mentioned. And so the, the author wrote that, um, you know, we commissioned it, but he, he wrote that independently. But we also at the museum had been doing our own work. So in 2013, I believe that was the first time that the museum had a public event and also a public statement in the museum's voice about concerns about the risk of genocide in Burma, specifically looking at the Rohingya community, Although many other communities across Burma had been experiencing mass atrocities and and ongoing risks of of mass atrocities, including war crimes and crimes against humanity. So in 2013, the museum had um, a a program called Our Walls Bear Witness, working with the photographer Greg Constantine to show images of uh, Rohingya uh, and really bring some of that information about, about what was happening in this moment of, you know, again, very initial, the very, you know, the slow beginning to a democratic transition, but what the experiences of, of the Rohingya community was then. And then in 2014, that article that you mentioned, I was looking at it and you know, this was a time of, as you said, great optimism and a time when the Obama administration, I think really, as, as you mentioned with the pivot to Asia, was looking for this this success story. And for the reasons you mentioned, it seemed like Burma, Myanmar had this as a potential. You know, a country emerging from, from military dictatorship and transitioning to a democracy. 
these changes were going to help a lot of people. And so I think there was good reason for optimism and good reason for hope. Um, in this article, uh, it, it reminded me, it has a quote from President Obama when he spoke in, in Yangon during his, his visit, his famous visit. And he said, quote, I stand here with confidence that something is happening in this country that cannot be reversed. And of course, he was talking about the, the initial moves towards democracy that were going to help so many people of Burma. Um, looking back now, it's so devastating to see those words because we know that there was something mm -hmm. else happening that, that was not reversed. Of course, it could have been. It could have been prevented. Mm -hmm. um, but that uh, those, those words, I think, take on a, a different meaning when we, when we look back now. Um, and then in 2015, the museum, the Simon Scott Center for the Prevention of Genocide, issued a report about early warning signs of genocide, right. specifically against the Rohingya. And, you know, that's where we listed uh, some very serious concerns about what was happening. And the framing of that report and also the, of that moment was that there were um, there was a sense of uh, one Rohingya activist told us a sense of euphoria, uh, this euphoria of change. In Burma, this is when Aung San Suu Kyi was, you know, about to informally you know, kind of take take the helm. You know, we're approaching the elections in 2015, mm -hmm. and there was so much uh, optimism, which is was well deserved on many fronts. But everyone we talked to said, "You're forgetting what's happening to us. You're forgetting what's happening beyond Yangon. <laughs> You're forgetting mm -hmm. what's happening in the periphery where conflict is still raging. Mm -hmm. You're forgetting about this, you know, entrenched." persecution against the Rohingya community on the basis of their identity, uh, what kind of democratic transition will be successful if, you know, built upon those, the, the history, the legacy of, of violence and persecution? And so that report that the museum issued in 2015, we then followed up again in 2017, right as the, the um, mass violence was uh, beginning in 2016 and in 2017 against Rohingya civilians in Rakhine State. And since then, we've only, um, you know, hardened our focus and deepened our resolve to work alongside our, our partners, Rohingya and, and otherwise from, from Burma, to make sure that, you know, we're supporting the documentation work to get information out about what is happening, to make sure that U.S. policymakers and others have the, the information, the tools, the support to, um, uh, you know, to, to put forward responses that could stem the, the violence and then to support civil society uh, who are really doing incredible work to to lead the charge for justice. So that's been the trajectory of the museum's work on Burma, but really it started, it started back then. It started back in 2013, 2014, 2015, during a time when most people were not, were not at least most people in the US or, or in the West were not talking about the potential for genocide in Burma. That's right. Yeah. And <clears throat> had recently had a discussion with former U.S. ambassador to Myanmar, Scott Marcial, and he uh, he echoed what he wrote in his recent book, Imperfect Partners, where from a diplomatic point of view, the difficulty of trying to determine a way forward where a regime which has been so rotten and despotic in the past is starting to make clear progress in certain areas, while other areas, it's not only not making progress, things are actually getting worse and more concerning. And I think this is what makes talking about the transition period somewhat difficult, because I think there, there are those who 
call the transition period something of a fraud and a smokescreen and a land grab and all these and the atrocities were still going on. And there are those who point to the real achievements and saying that there's no way that there would have been the kind of resistance we're seeing now unless people had had those opportunities. And somehow I think both are true during that period that there, there certainly were opportunities and progress open for some communities that was very real. And yet there were, uh, there were also things happening in other parts of the country to other communities and with the former military leaders who still had some power and corruption that were doing really bad things. And so it was this very complicated reality during that time of trying to understand exactly what was going on and perhaps the coexistence of two contradictory realities that were happening simultaneously and that are continuing to play out simultaneously today post-coup. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you've said that really profoundly. Um, and I think uh, we would probably be doing a, a disservice to, to multiple people to kind of uh, to say that the, the transition was this, um, you know, a, a smokescreen. And I also think, you know, uh, playing it up as it, as a natural good for all is also incomplete. And you're, you're mm-hmm. right. The transition, it helped many people. There were new openness, new advances, job opportunities, um, opportunities for connection and, and learning that were not available before. And that is incredibly significant. And when I was in Rakhine State back in, you know, 2014, 2015, talking with people there, they said, you know, this is, this is great, but when, when will it reach us <laughs> or when mm-hmm. will, when will, um, you know, the, the violence against us be taken more seriously? And, uh, you know, I talked with, with men and with women and interestingly, a lot of the women said, you know, things have been really bad for so long. Um, and, you know, yes, we're, we're hopeful for the future, but there really needs to be some serious change because life for us is it's, you know, it's not improving the way that you would expect, um, you know, things to to improve given the the rapid pace of change elsewhere in the country. And it's, it's really difficult. And I'm very sensitive to, you know, I think it's, it's very difficult for people in the diplomatic community who do want to do what they can to encourage bad actors to, to step back. And that Mm. is the most important thing is for you know perpetrators of mass atrocities to to cease what what they're doing, um, but then what what gets left behind, and if the structures of inequality of discrimination are there, and there isn't as part of that democratic movement a concerted effort uh, by many to kind of dismantle some of those institutions or some of those those legacies, then what kind of future is being built? And those are questions that I think are important to ask, questions that I think were being asked by, by civil society within Burma, but it probably not as much by people um, kind of leading the charge politically. Um, and I think that that probably could have been, it, it was something that was certainly seen by Rohingya, who we were speaking to, that they felt left out of the transition and, and left out of the political discussion. And I want to get specifically into the Rohingya crisis, and I, I want to also quote uh, another excerpt from this conversation I had with Scott Marcial, where he was describing that as the crisis was unfolding, the embassy was in a difficult position of, on one side, having human rights groups wanting them to immediately confirm and validate the extent of the violations going on, and on the other hand, uh, those Bamar and NLD at the time wanting the embassy to suggest that this was being overblown or exaggerated. And so, and I think those were the beginning seeds of, and that was happening in real time. And so the embassy was in a very difficult position then of having, not really having proper information yet being called on to make statements. But I think that also indicated the contrasting realities, histories, legacies of 
what actually happened there. And it, while it's understandable that in the present moment, not everyone would have the same set of facts, but this has now been going on for some years. And there have been many people that have come to look at and examine what exactly went on there and, uh, and, and should have all the facts in front of them. Um, it was officially termed to be a genocide and that uh, even that determination uh, still uh, has a controversy in some sectors. And so I really want, I want, I know this is a sensitive and somewhat controversial topic, but I really want to touch upon this directly. I think it's very important, not just as an issue, but as you being a representative of the U.S. Holocaust Museum, where to this day, there are Holocaust deniers. There are the same things being said all these years on in many forms, whether it was a complete fabrication or whether the numbers weren't as severe as it was supposed to be. And so the, the Holocaust Museum mission is still continues to be that this, this really happened and here's the evidence of it. And that's something we also have to take seriously with the Rohingya, which is much more recent. And one of the reasons I'm, I'm asking this question is somewhat coincidentally or ironically, just a couple days before, while I was preparing for this interview, I was on Twitter and I saw a series of tweets by the academic Derek Tonkin, who is somewhat controversial. And, and he, in this series of tweets, he had a lot of pushback. So Derek Tonkin wrote, quote, the determination of genocide by Secretary Blinken was not, was not made against Myanmar, but against the military only. Even then, the evidence presented was far from convincing. The determination was a political, not a legal act. In any case, the evidence presented was partly based on the dubious analysis and misinformation which Secretary Blinken saw during his tour of the Holocaust Museum's Burma exhibit, ex exhibition. The errors in this evidence I exposed in my TOAEP brief. One of the documents referred to by Secretary Blinken contains the astonishing statement that 82% of a representative sample of 1,024 Rohingya interviews, Rohingya refugees interviewed personally witnessed a killing. 82% exclamation point. Even 8.2% would be highly unlikely, end quote. Sorry, thanks for, for bringing that up. Well, so genocide determinations in general, when made by a government, they tend to be political but they should be based on a clear analysis of the facts at hand and a, an understanding of the law. So the museum itself undertook that exercise and worked with a number of people to understand the factual situation and with legal advisors to determine in December 2018 that the Burmese military had committed genocide against the Rohingya population. Um, the, the moment that you're, you're referencing in those quotes, Secretary Blinken did come to the museum in March of 20, uh, 2022 to, he toured the Rohingya exhibition that I can, I'm happy to share more about in a moment, and then offered his official determination that the Burmese military did commit genocide and crimes against humanity against the Rohingya people. Uh, the, the determination itself um, was based on accurate information, including the, the uh, interviews that you mentioned. Those were conducted by the, the State Department through um, a, a documentation effort that it led with another group in Bangladesh. So those interviews were part of an effort by the U.S. government to try to understand the facts of the case. And so that information was drawn upon and was referenced by Secretary Blinken and also features within the exhibition inside the Holocaust Museum uh, to show the experience of, of people. Um, and some of the, the statistics are quite 
devastating. Um, this this uh, documentation was carried out by experts in their field, by people who are deeply steeped in um, the methodology of collecting information from uh, from survivor communities. So that information was, uh, you know, headed by the the State Department and was, to its credit, you know, an effort by the the department to understand the the nature of the crimes. The determination was made and, in our opinion, reflects the the facts of the case. Uh, Reasonable minds can disagree on legal analysis. Genocide is a very specific crime that includes not only enumerated acts, but acts against a protected group, acts against a protected group with the, the specific intent to destroy in whole or in substantial part that group. And there can be um, you know, really robust conversations among experts who might differ in their analysis, all coming from reasonable positions. Um, in this case, the information at hand you know, was collected by the State Department. Uh, information collected by civil society organizations was also influential and helpful for the, the State Department in, in making its determination. Um, so I think that there can be debate about genocide determinations. Um, in this case, the museum stands by its finding and you know is is supportive of of what the U.S. government did first to understand the facts and commission this effort to document what had happened and to publicly share its its determination. We think that is helpful um, to understand the the nature of the crimes. But even more importantly, I think um, genocide determinations are not a particular end goal of of policymakers. And no one is cheering when a genocide determination is made, because mm-hmm. that means we have all failed yet again to to prevent genocide from happening. Um, and so a determination, while important, it's an important analytical moment. It can be a political moment. But what is more important is the response uh, by governments to the early warning signs in the lead up to, to these crimes and to the response of governments after the the crimes have been committed. So what can be done now to make sure that victims and survivors are protected, to make sure justice is done, and to mitigate the risks of of the crimes reoccurring? So those are really important um, policy discussions that I think should be on the table as well. Mm, right. I, I also want to ask, you know, going back to the, the U.S. Holocaust Museum's mission, um, many missions, obviously, but one of them, at least in my mind, is to affirm this did happen. Th- this was something that did happen. These are facts. This is history. These are, these are, are um, and having artifacts of um, the railway cars or the, the, the personal effects or other things of the victims, that this is something real that happened. And the reality of that history living with us today, may, even for those that know about it already, it has, uh, it's, it's very emotional. It's a very profound thing to experience. And this and it it acknowledges and affirms what happened, how it happened, and the effect of that. And as you, as the museum has taken an interest in looking at uh, and a concern, looking at uh, uh, potential genocides and atrocities happening in other places, it's a similar uh, motivation to want to affirm that something very bad is happening and. Uh, and to do the documentation, present the evidence, and to be able to state this as a fact in the world. And this is certainly what you've done with uh, the contribution towards investigating and documenting the Rohingya crisis. And then, 
as you've you you have a, a, a whole room exhibit in the museum that is documenting the Rohingya crisis and it's uh, impacted U.S. policy and affirming that this really took place, you then have a noted academic who states publicly that not only is the information that you've collected and presented erroneous and and obviously erroneous, but this erroneous information has contributed to a mistaken policy of the U.S. based on basically wrong information, which is diametrically opposed to the mission of wanting to assert a fact and state a fact. And so I, I wonder what kind of personal impact that has. I mean, I wonder if it's if it's a sense, as you said before, of just, well, there's different determinations and kind of this clinical way of looking at it. Different academics and different people look at this in different ways, and it's a hard thing to sort out, and there's a way to to separate from it just in, in the more... Um, in that more kind of professional technical way, or if there's is something that runs deeper when you hear a quote like that, where it feels like it's pushing against the very thing that you're trying to do. Right. Well, it, it can be many things. So someone disagreeing with a legal determination can be reasonable. Um, there also could, can be a, um, a, a showing of denial of the crimes themselves. And one of the reasons, as you mentioned, the, the reason why the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum exists is to teach people about the Holocaust and to counter those those tides of denial, which which remain sadly strong today. Uh, the the exhibition you mentioned, which is called Burma's Path to Genocide, which tells the story of the Rohingya people over the decades, over the 20th century, looking at what happened, particularly in the village of Mong Nu, um, and cataloging the stories of survivors and their experiences on August 27th, 2017 through today. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons why we had that that story and trying to tell this the story within the Holocaust Museum is to also guard against the forces of denial regarding what has happened against the Rohingya people. And this is not something that is from, it's not from you know, academics or the West, but also from people within Burma who might be questioning the veracity of, of what Rohingya communities have been sharing. Uh, and so having that within the museum, having a place where people can come and learn about what has happened was, was extremely important for us. We've also translated parts of the exhibition into Burmese to share that with uh, people, with audiences within Burma who are interested in, in learning more about, about what had happened there. But that was one of the, the goals of having this exhibition is to um, allow Rohingya survivors in their own words and importantly in the Rohingya language share what had happened to them. Um, and one of the, the things we tried to do with the exhibition is allow audiences and visitors to try to grapple with some of these, these difficult problems. You know, some of the, the problems in the lead up to the genocide when early warning signs were evident and when genocide perhaps could have been prevented, uh, what could have been done then? And I think it forces some serious introspection and, uh, you know, tries to, to, on a personal level, allow people to grapple with, you know, what, what could have been done and then what should be done now. And the Rohingya are one of many communities who have been at, at risk of genocide. What can we learn from that experience to make sure that, again, we do not fail people who, who are at risk? Uh, what can we make sure that this does not um, become repeated again in the future? Mm -hmm. And I think it really does affirm that. I was just talking to the Burmese artist who goes by the name Bart Was Not Here and uh, about his visit to uh, this exhibit when he was in D.C. And one of the things he said that really stuck out was 
how profound it was to see a, and I might be getting this wrong. I'm trying to remember exactly what he said, but I believe that there's a panel that is actually a reproduction of a Facebook post that Aung San Suu Kyi made that was questioning or denying that rape had taken place. And that to for for Bart to know is following this along and being so angry when it happened, but it's just happening in the cyberspace and, you know, one of many things. And to see this displayed real, you know, something hard you can touch, it just had this profound impact on him that there was this reality to just the selection of all the things that were out there to choose that and to put that up and then to have all the thousands of people come and see that. It affirmed something in him that he felt was kind of slipping by and in in the whole um, discussion and crisis that was going on. And it was very profound for him that the museum had made the decision to be able to take those particular words and put them up there for all to see as a testament that this is what was actually said. Um, yeah, I'm so glad to hear that feedback. We, we, we wanted to show that, um, you know, perpetrators commit genocide. They often commit genocide within an environment that allows it to happen. And so it's a complicated story to tell. We only have three rooms of mm. the museum to, to, to tell the story mm-hmm. and knowing that visitors might come into the exhibition with very little knowledge previously about, about the situation. But we wanted to show a bit of complexity around, you know, what it means to, um, to you know, stem the, the, the forces of, of hate. What does it mean to create an environment uh, where genocide might happen? What does it mean to create an environment where people are protected from from such crimes? And that's what we tried to do in the exhibition. Um, there are places in the exhibition where, as I mentioned, you can hear the range of language where survivors are speaking in their own words about what had mm-hmm. happened. Um, we also have Rohingya music. We also share you know, Rohingya history and culture. We want to make sure that visitors learn Rohingya are more than, yes, the victims of genocide, um, that they, they are an entire people with, with a rich history that should be understood and celebrated. And also that um, you know, genocide does not happen in you know, one day of violent attack or mm-hmm. in, you know, in a particular moment. There are early warning signs. There are always warning signs. Um, and that there, there also is a long tail, that the trauma of genocide persists for individuals, but also through generations. So we try to tell that entire story in these you know, three rooms that look at early warning signs, the attacks on, on Mong Nu in this case, and then the aftermath and, and what people are living with today. And one of the most um, powerful experiences I've had in that exhibition was bringing through young Rohingya community members, maybe mm-hmm. two dozen or so, uh, people who didn't speak English for, for the most part, and people who were relying on translators mm-hmm. to, to understand some some parts of the, the exhibition. But then they could hear from from people speaking Rohingya, speaking you know, their own language, uh, and they they didn't need to have a translator. And it was as if the, the space you know was theirs. The space had been made for them. And that was really powerful to me um, mm-hmm. and I, you know, to, to colleagues who had been working on, on the exhibition. Uh, we create the exhibition for many reasons, um, but one is also to create a space where stories of people who have experienced genocide today can, can be heard and can see their stories you know, reflected in, in the museum. Mm, and getting back to Secretary Blinken's visit, when I referenced that in the tweet, you said there was more to say about that. So I just wanted to return to that and anything you wanted to share about the impact of his visit or his impressions. 
Sure. Well, I think um, I think the determination he made was meaningful. Um, meaningful not because it's politically expedient, but meaningful because it reflected the facts that had been documented. And meaningful because of the, the people who were gathered in that room. There were Rohingya community leaders and also members of other, uh, you know, other communities who had experienced mass atrocities across Burma coming together to hear the secretary's determination, um, which not, you know, wasn't only about the the findings of genocide, but was about the the importance of of um, of understanding the the trends of hate and understanding the role um, that people should should take in uh, preventing genocide in the future, the roles that you know, governments should be taking and, and all of us. And it was incredibly meaningful, I think, to have the exhibition and to have the museum play a very small role, at least in you know, serving as a place where that, that kind of information can be shared with the public. But as I mentioned before, that's not the, it's certainly not a goal. Um, it's, it's not a goal to have that kind of determination, to have that kind of finding. Um, and now I think the question is, you know, with the devastating violence we're seeing facing so many communities, what can be done to limit the capacity of, of perpetrators to, you know, to continue to target civilians? What can be done to protect those who are at risk today? those who have experienced genocide, but also the millions of others throughout the country who perhaps have not, but still are equally deserving of protection from from mass atrocities from, and from other targeted violence. And how should our policies adapt to this really worrisome you know, trend in, in Burma today? And I think those are those are questions that are, I think, animating policy discussions today and very much should be should be at the fore when we're thinking about how governments um, and how all of us should be responding and reacting to, to the information coming out of Burma today. When the determination was made, there were some voices, like the tweet that I read, that at the time and to this day feel that it was political, it was overblown, it was incorrect, it wasn't as bad as people say. Then there was the other response. And this also reflects the, again, going back to the conversation I had with Scott Marcial of being between these, these different poles of different uh, strong views of seeing it, there was a response by when the determination came there, there was, there were some who felt a kind of validation or officialdom of, of an acceptance of verification that this had happened. Um, but there were many in the human rights committee that or human rights uh, community, I should say, that I remember hearing at the time that were upset because they felt that this was nothing to celebrate because it had taken so long and there was no excuse why, why so many years had passed without this being done, that there was a lot of momentum uh, that could have happened if it was done earlier and that and they actually charged it was political that it wasn't done before and that it wasn't really something to um, it, it uh, the uh, the potential positivity of moving forward and building momentum from this determination, taking those next steps that you talk about was outweighed by the fact that it took as as long as it did to reach this point. Well, in this case, the determination did take quite a few years after the State Department had its own documentation effort to uncover a lot of the facts of the situation. Um, and so some of that, again, you know, not speaking as someone within the government, I mean, some of that could have been political, some of that could have been just operational. Um, I also think there's a lot of care that needs to be, you know, taken when, when doing this kind of analysis. Still, it, it was several years late, um, in, in my opinion. In general, there can be, you know, a brutal violence against civilians that perhaps 
um, does not meet the definition of genocide. Um, in this case, that that was not not so. And in this case, we did see an intent to destroy on the part of the perpetrators. And so, uh, you know, we thought that the facts were making that case clear earlier. As I said, reasonable minds might disagree on the legal analysis, but there has been so much information gathered, not only by by Rohingya, by independent documenters, but also by the U.S. government that that led to this finding. Um, the finding was, you know, based on one source, uh, but it was really helpful, I think, to to have some kind of official finding. I share the views of, of those you summarized earlier that it did come too late. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again. A determination is not a specific end goal. It's mm-hmm. to me, a determination is made when you, uh, you know, look at the law and look at the facts and see if a definition is met. Um, the museum put out a report called "By Any Other Name," which looks at the history of U.S. genocide determinations, and of course, uh, those determinations are are always made with the political realities of the day. Um, in this case, the, the facts matched the, the law. And so that's why the museum issued its own determination, um, which was backed by a, a community of, of independent legal experts as well. That came out again before, you know, years before the, the State Department, before Secretary Blinken offered, offered his own. Um, but even if there, you know, had been no determination or even, you know, in the, the time, uh, you know, spent in between, you know, the, the acts having been committed and a determination having been met, there still is time to put forward policies that can help, you know, limit the capacity of perpetrators or protect victims. Um, and none of that is you know, automatically hinging on a particular determination. Mm-hmm. Uh, those determinations can create moments of, of momentum, of political opportunity, sure, but there it can be a lot of progress made uh, no matter what a, a determination can be. Uh, but even now, if we look at what, what is happening now, I think just making sure that um, there's you know, efforts to be redoubled to make sure that uh, communities at risk of, of mass violence, of mass atrocities in the country today um, know that the U.S. is doing all it can to try to, to, try to protect them. That that's a really good point. That looking at this determination as one step in a process, I think that we do get really caught up in this word, this designation, the implications, and the meaning behind it. And for someone as involved as you are, I think it's a very good reminder to know that this is a a kind of a checkpoint along the way. That's an important one, but it's not. Um, it's certainly not where we're trying to get. So let's move the conversation to that. And and post-coup, you know, pre-coup during the transition period, your museum and your position um, within the museum was particularly looking at uh, the growing concern of these atrocities taking place and later making that determination of genocide as a transition was also happening alongside it. And yet after the coup, we're plunged into a totally different reality or maybe not completely different. It's some kind of extenuation of what we had before, but it's certainly different than where some areas of the transition was going into. And so where we are now with post-coup, with the military regime uh, meeting out such brutal punishment of all peoples, not just Rohingya, not just ethnic and religious minorities, but Bamar as well. We're seeing fighting in rural Sagain regions, the dry zone as it's called, that really in previous conflicts and um past history we haven't really seen much of since perhaps the post-independence communist era or the communist insurrections that happened around there. 
And so you're seeing a, I think, what can be called a real indiscriminate violence against everyone. I mean, they're bombing um, pagodas. They're uh, taking over mon- Buddhist monasteries. The, the This regime, which somehow justifies its existence by protecting Buddhism, is uh, destroying Buddhism and literally occupying monasteries to stage operations, among many, many other things. Well, I think uh, the the future might look bleak, just given the the state of the crimes, as as you described. The U.S. It, in terms of you know, the U.S. government response um, has has been responding, you know, has has issued sanctions, um, and has been working in coordination with with allies to to make sure that those those sanctions are effective, and that's that's helpful. Um, so far, those efforts have been insufficient to stem the violence. Um, from what civil society leaders are, are calling for, they're looking for sanctions on um, you know, the Myanmar oil and gas enterprises to try to keep the military from enriching itself and, you know, being able to, to purchase the weapons and have the ability to, you know, bomb its own people, basically. Um, the people are calling for restrictions on jet fuel because the, the military is using air power as a, a prime way to target civilians now. And those are ways to just make it harder for the military to, to commit these crimes. I think another another approach could be to dissuade perpetrators from committing crimes that seem over the past several decades of trying. I'm, I'm not sure what, what could be successful there, but at least making it less less possible. Um, so that's that's something that I think matches what a lot of civil society groups are saying in terms of what needs to be done. And if that could be done in a coordinated, a coordinated way among several countries, you could be left with a perpetrator just maybe is is still bent on um, oppressing and you know victimizing its own people, but is just less able to do so, which might offer a, a bit of relief. And then offering more support for the really um, you know the, the well-established um, expert civil society groups, many of whom you know, might be in the country or might have been pushed to the the border areas people doing the really important work to protect people, to offer um, uh, support to people who have been displaced. Those are essential efforts and the need probably will not be diminishing in the near term and doing whatever you know can be done to support those, those experts, those local groups who are providing those essential services. And then there are efforts from civil society to not only document what is happening, but try to bring that information into you know formal accountability efforts. And I think that governments can also support people like you know Toon Kin, who's bringing a case in Argentina under this principle of universal jurisdiction about the genocide of the the Rohingya, and trying to help in in other cases to 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 make the case that perpetrators should be held accountable for what what has happened, including in a, a formal um, a, a formal legal setting. So there's a lot that I think can be done. Um, I don't want to diminish the important work that has been done already, but just given the state of violence um, and the, the trauma that has been inflicted and continues to be inflicted on populations, there needs to be more. There needs to be more from the U.S. and from, from other governments in a coordinated way to make sure that uh, people can receive a bit more protection. Mm-hmm. And. Another thing that's been looked at is responsibility to protect. This was something that you actually, that the museum did a report on in 2013, uh, questioning if uh, responsibility to protect, known as R2P, 
if that might be relevant in the developing crisis at the time with the, the Rohingya, uh, this in the initial days and weeks after the coup, there were signs that we saw all over the country, all over Myanmar, that were calling on R2P and then frustration afterwards when nothing seemed to happen. Right. Well, as a norm, responsibility to protect uh, refers to the obligation of states to protect their own people. And then the obligation after that for other countries to to assist those those governments in in upholding that obligation. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I I, I wouldn't kind of reduce that norm to intervention. Um, Mm -hmm. I I do think that's how it's it's often understood, but I I don't think that's that's correct. And in this case, probably not helpful. Mm -hmm. Um, I think when we look at the potential opportunities for um, prevention, in the, I think, in the lead up to the Rohingya genocide, but also in the lead up to the coup, intervention is is would probably not be a helpful one. Um, especially a military intervention would would you know have come with with many risks of its own. Um, but there are lots of other things that can be done in terms of protecting civilians. Um, and so just thinking about what what more could have been done in the the lead up to 2017. And I know the U.S., as you've explained before, has had been in a, a difficult position of wanting to support the fledgling democracy movement and wanting to do what it can to to throw its weight behind a democratic transition. Um, but also understanding that risks of genocide are serious and cannot be ignored. And what what more could have been done then? And what could what more could have been done to make sure that um, there were national conversations amongst the, the, the democracy movement about making sure that um, that all those in the country, you know, all, all civilians can be protected. And people who you know are, are looking for a better future for their country, I'm sure, have a vision for. For all of their people, and I think ensuring that kind of the kind of conversation as part of a transition um, was probably difficult, but I think um, uh, could have been uh, could have been an important missing piece. Um, and then thinking about what could have been done in the the lead up to the coup again, not not talking about intervention, but just thinking a bit more seriously um, about what kinds of repercussions the military could have faced. I mean, we're two and a half years in, and they, you know, the, the military still is able to enrich itself, and not not only from you know kind of bad actors, not only from from China or, or Russia, but from um, from its own enterprises, and that there is no, um, there's certainly no global arms embargo, um, and there aren't even coordinated efforts among other states to, as I mentioned, restrict the the items that the military is using, and that it would need to continue its its violent campaign against its people. So there is a lot more that can be done, and so in the in terms of the the state of the norm of responsibility to protect, the the norm is alive and well, and I think our understanding should include a broad. A spectrum of, of prevention and understanding what those those tools could be. And just if, if I may, the, the museum um, has a, a list on, on our website of, of tools for atrocity prevention of all the various efforts that could be undertaken and should be you know, seriously considered by governments when early warning signs are present. Um, there are there are many different uh, tools in the toolbox, so to speak, that, that should be considered and perhaps are not all applicable or would not all be successful in all situations but are deserving of, of due consideration. And I think that's something that we're not seeing across the board, the idea of, you know, there are a number of tools, a number of approaches, perhaps lessons from, from other contexts that, that could, be, could be helpful when um, charting what you know, U.S. or other policies, um, you know, on, on genocide prevention could be in, in Burma or, or in other places in the future. 
Mm, right. Thanks for that clarification. Uh, as we're moving on in this crisis, I want to ask uh, about the role of the museum itself and what all you're doing with that. Some of the things I know, and I'll just reference here, and you can go into more detail and perhaps expand on other activities I don't know or plan, upcoming plans. Uh, I know that you're part of a Burma advocacy groups that's sharing information and strategies and networking to look at how to affect policy. And you've already discussed in this conversation how the, uh, the, the work you've done in the way of reports, media advocacy, the exhibits, everything else um, have contributed towards trying to influence policy in terms of what the U.S. doing, as you it said just recently that the, we want to see the U.S. doing absolutely all it can to uh, be able to limit the devastation that's being caused to these vulnerable communities. So there's that. There's obviously the uh, exhibit, the Rohingya exhibit that that is that anyone can see if they're in D.C. and go to the Holocaust Museum. I highly recommend. It's not specifically about the coup, but it is. Uh, it certainly is related in terms of what this military regime is capable of and what they're now doing to other populations throughout the country. And then you've also had a recent panel. Um, there's, we'll have a link to it in the show notes, but you had a, a panel of uh, four different Burmese guests from different backgrounds that were able to talk about post-coup and reality of their communities and the things that they would like to see the U.S. government do in terms of policy. So share a bit about the thinking and rationale behind why the museum is playing a role at this time in this ongoing crisis, as well as some more of the specific actions that maybe I haven't mentioned or things that you're thinking about and ways that you would like to see the museum's response being a player in this. Sure, sure. Well, you, you captured a lot of the, the main threads of our work. So the, the public event that you mentioned was looking at, uh, you know, leaders from communities across Burma talking about mass atrocity risks today and what the U.S. government could do in response. Um, so that that includes, you know, the, the situation facing the Rohingya, but not, not exclusively looking at what is happening in Chin State and in, in Kachin State and Karen State and in the, 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 the you know, central plains, as you mentioned before, what is happening across the country and what kinds of responses are, are necessary at this time. So thank you for sharing information about that. And that, that's part of a a vein of educating the public, but also having policy relevant conversations here in, in Washington to bring the the expertise from different communities who are at risk to those kinds of policy discussions. So that that is an ongoing theme of our work. The exhibition Burma's Path to Genocide, as you mentioned, currently available uh, here in, in Washington. Please do come and visit in person if you're able. If you're not able to come to Washington to come to the museum and see the exhibition, it's also available online called Burma's Path to Genocide. The content is similar. It's not the same, but you can hear some of the stories that I, I, I referenced earlier, stories of survivors from Long Nu. And that really is meant to not only kind of spark a, an emotional connection with um, the experience of survivors, but also to, to kind of have those difficult questions about what, what could have been done, what can be done now. Um, it's kind of, it's difficult sometimes to grapple with, with failures to prevent genocide, but having these stories and having a context is an important way in which that can be done. We have uh, lesson plans for teachers who want to take the information in the exhibition and use that to teach others. Uh, we, of course, as an educational institution at the museum, want to make sure that we're doing what we can to, to share this information with the public and those who are able to kind of spread it within, within their networks too. 
And then a lot of our work is private, you know, talking with people across DC, uh, trying to, to keep momentum going, trying to keep a focus um, on the, the plight of, of people at risk of atrocities across Burma and doing what we can to, to make sure that, that you know, policy conversations can continue to take that uh, with the, the utmost the seriousness um, and making sure, you know, options for response and preventive uh, efforts that, that I mentioned are, are given the, you know, the, the serious consideration that, that they should have. So we have the, the public facing work and then also the, the more private you know, conversations trying to make sure that the U.S. policymakers have the, the support and the resources that they, they need to do this important work. Mm, that's great. Thank you for sharing that. And I think that brings us up to speed in your background, the center's background, um, through the Rohingya crisis and then today in the post-coup world and your role and the center's role in that. So I, I thank you very much for taking the time to have this discussion and just want to invite you if there's anything that we haven't brought up in this talk that you would like to get into now before we close. Sure. Well, thank you for inviting me to to be on this program today. And the the only thing that I would close with is just a moment of of appreciation and a note of thanks for uh, the the many advisors and partners and colleagues we have from the Rohingya community, but also from from many other communities in Burma who have been so instrumental in our work. The exhibition wouldn't be here if it weren't for groups of you know two dozen advisors who who helped mm-hmm. us everything on on content and and how to to share the story with the public, um, and so it was with a, a good dose of humility that we we undertook mm-hmm. that work and really it couldn't have been done without our our partners. So just wanted to end with a, a note of appreciation for all of them. Since the coup, Better Burma has provided consistent humanitarian aid to vulnerable communities across Myanmar. Over time, however, we have also come to realize that another consequence of the coup is a severely collapsed economy. Trade and tourism have almost entirely evaporated, and local artisan communities suddenly found every opportunity of continuing livelihood closed off to them. To help support those artisan communities, Better Burma now brings items direct from their workshop into your home. These lovely pieces from a far corner of the world will not only light up your room or make a lovely gift for a loved one, but they'll also help dozens of artisans create sustainable businesses and livelihoods. Part of each purchase will also go towards our ongoing nonprofit mission. To see these beautiful crafts, visit alokacrafts.com. That's aloka, A-L-O-K-A, crafts, C-R-A-F-T-S, one word, alokacrafts.com. Of course, as is your preference, you can also consider making a donation through our normal channels. If you would like to join in our mission to support those in Myanmar who are being impacted by the military coup, we welcome your contribution in any form, currency, or transfer method. Your donation will go on to support a wide range of humanitarian and media missions, aiding those local communities who need it most. Donations are directed to such causes as the Civil Disobedience Movement, CDM, Families of Deceased Victims, internally displaced person IDP camps, food for impoverished communities, military defection campaigns, undercover journalists, refugee camps, monasteries and nunneries, education initiatives, the purchasing of protective equipment and medical supplies, COVID relief, and more. We also make sure that our donation fund supports a diverse range of religious and ethnic groups across the country. We invite you to visit our website to learn more about past projects as well as upcoming needs. 
You can give a general donation or earmark your contribution to a specific activity or project you would like to support, perhaps even something you heard about in this very episode. All of this humanitarian work is carried out by our nonprofit mission, Better Burma. Any donation you give on our Insight Myanmar website is directed towards this fund. Alternatively, you can also visit the Better Burma website, betterburma.org, and donate directly there. In either case, your donation goes to the same cause in both websites except credit card. You can also give via PayPal by going to paypal.me slash betterburma. Additionally, we can take donations through Patreon, Venmo, GoFundMe, and Cash App. Simply search Better Burma on each platform and you'll find our account. You can also visit either website for specific links to these respective accounts or email us at info at betterburma.org. That's Better Burma, one word, spelled B-E-T-T-E-R-B-U-R-M-A dot org. If you would like to give in another way, please contact us. We also invite you to check out our range of handicrafts that are sourced from vulnerable artisan communities across Myanmar, available at alokacrafts.com. Any purchase will not only support these artisan communities, but also our nonprofit's wider mission. That's Aloka Crafts, spelled A-L-O-K-A-C-R-A-F-T-S, one word, alokacrafts.com. Thank you so much for your kind consideration and support. Oh, ba, yaran nanda, yaran nanga, yaran nanya, yaran nanya, yaran nampora, ba, yaran nampora.